Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, A Union Without Power, The Articles of Confederation. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, Republicanism. While fighting was taking place on the battlefield, politicians were working to create governments. To understand these governments, you have to understand little r, republicanism. Because of the colonial experience and the experience of the revolution, many Americans had a shared political ideology, though it had different pronunciations in different locations. So let's go through the four tenets of republicanism, which is the shared ideology of many Americans. The first of those is that any nation is governed by a battle between liberty and power, as power is aggressive and corrupting. The second tenant is that you give anyone power, it will cause more problems. An example of this is that the people in this time period worried about standing armies, because they believed that standing armies would infringe on their liberties. People also worried about kings. Kings could appoint too many people to positions of power, and they would then support their patron. They also worried that power will extend the king or government's reach. Many also worried about separating the power of the purse and the power of the sword. If you collect taxes, you shouldn't run the army, which is power that is difficult to defeat. Thus, power needs to be limited, but also separated into various places. The third tenet of republicanism says that the people are sovereign and the power lies with the people. In the 18th century, this is a revolutionary idea as most people were subjects. There were rulers and the ruled, with the power being in the king. But now, in a true republic, sovereignty lies with the people of the country, and government rests on the will of the people. The fourth tenet was that people must be independent and virtuous. If the people relied on someone else, or were dependent on them, they would have to do what they said, and that would not make them a good sovereign people, because if you have to rely on someone else for a livelihood, they can control your vote. Also, the people need to be virtuous, so that they put the country's needs ahead of their own. This last point speaks to the concept of virtue and luxury. Luxury threatens virtue, for it makes you put your needs above the country. Tied to this idea of virtue and luxury is the idea of licentiousness too much liberty, doing what makes you feel good too much. The founders would be shocked and appalled at shows like My 600-Pound Life, and this is an example of licentiousness. A fifth unstated tenet of republicanism was the idea that republics must be small, because if you have too big of a country with too many different competing interests, it will create internal conflict. The point is that this ideology of republicanism will lead Americans to create a specific form of government in the aftermath of the revolution based on their experiences. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Political Philosophy. In this age, the idea of creating republics is radical. Most governments around the world were monarchies. Montesquieu, in The Spirit of Laws, written in 1748, said that for republics to work, its citizens had to be virtuous and disinterested, and it had to be so small that it did not have competing interests. 
and he also noted that most past republics, like Rome, had failed. So, how will this shape the Founders' creation of governments? Well, their main focus was on writing individual state constitutions, not a national one. Americans are not yet interested in creating a powerful, new national government. So how do you do this? Well, many write to John Adams, who writes up a summary of his views on what constitutions should look like. And, go figure, many states adopt this framework. The goal is to create various individual republics. Now, a republic is representative democracy, not direct democracy. Representative democracies is where you vote for representatives to vote on important issues for you. Direct democracy is where you personally vote on every issue. So direct is more burdensome, more time-consuming, and rarely produces consensus. Most elites also fear direct democracy because they thought commoners would be ruled by their passions. Instead, elites believed that only educated, virtuous, and disinterested individuals could be trusted to promote the public good. The whole point of all this is that to the founders, establishing a republic was an experiment, and they would probably all be shocked that the experiment is still going on to this day. Please advance to the next slide entitled, National Government. Although state governments were considered most important, most Americans knew that they had to create some kind of national government. The Continental Congress had been serving as a de facto national government during the war, but its legitimacy needed to be established. Shortly writing after the Declaration of Independence, the Second Continental Congress wrote America's first national constitution, and it was called the Articles of Confederation. It said, quote, Each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, and every power, jurisdiction, and right which is not by this confederation expressly delegated to the United States in Congress assembled. End quote. In other words, the individual state governments would retain most power, and the National Confederation government would be weak. Why do you think this is? Part of it is the experience of the lead-up to the revolution. The other is jealousies and fear. Edward Rutledge once wrote to John Jay saying, quote, If the plan now proposed should be adopted, nothing less than ruin to some colonies will be the consequence of it. The idea of destroying all provincial distinctions and making everything of the most minute kind bend to what they call the good of the whole is in other terms to say that these colonies must be subject to the government of the eastern provinces. The force of their arms I hold exceedingly cheap, but I confess I dread their overruling influence in council. I dread their low cunning, and those leveling principles which men without character and without fortune in general possess, which are so captivating to the lower class of mankind, and which will occasion such a fluctuation of property as to introduce the greatest disorder." End quote. Let me unpack that a little for you. The eastern provinces, he means New England. And he's saying, I'm not afraid of fighting them. I'm just afraid of them in government because of their, quote, low cunning and their leveling principles. So he's afraid of the fact that they're going to do stuff for the common good. And he's afraid of the fluctuation of property 
and more than likely, slave property. In other words, Rutledge does not trust Northerners or other states, and he wants to jealously maintain power for his own ends. Now, the Articles of Confederation government is much different than today's. Our current federal government has three branches. What are they? Hopefully you said legislature, executive, and judicial. Well, the Confederation government has one branch, and a unicameral, meaning single-house, Congress. In our current government, we have two houses. Also, under the Articles of Confederation, each state had one vote per state, regardless of its size or population. Congress could only conduct diplomacy, coin and borrow money, request money, and soldiers from various states. It could regulate Indian affairs and settle disputes between the various states. But they could not tax. Again, because of the experience of the Revolution. In March of 1781, the Articles of Confederation were ratified by the 13 states. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Successes. As you can see, there were very few successes for the Confederation government. One was negotiating the Treaty of Paris in 1783. But really, that's John Adams, John Jay, and Ben Franklin, but we'll still give the Confederation credit for their efforts. The major success was the passage of the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. This dealt with the old Northwest Territory, which is what we call the modern Midwest, so Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, those states. The Northwest Ordinance allowed the freedom of religion, trial by jury, all guaranteed in a Bill of Rights. Slavery was banned in the region, and territories could apply for statehood when their population reached 60,000 free inhabitants, and new states would enter the Union on an equal footing with the original states in all respects whatsoever. So just because you were old Virginia does not mean that you had better privileges than new Kentucky. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Failures. As you can see, there were numerous failures. First, the United States was not very united. They enacted trade tariffs, barriers on each other's goods, so that by the mid-1780s, Connecticut was taxing goods from Massachusetts more heavily than goods from Great Britain. New York taxed New Jersey and Pennsylvania goods, so they did not have to tax their own citizens. Each state claimed its own currency, so interstate trade was a nightmare. During the Revolution, Vermont's territory was claimed by both New Hampshire and New York, so Vermont seceded from both, and created its own independent Republic of Vermont, and stayed this way throughout the 1780s. And since no one knew what to do about it, and since Congress can't do anything about it, nobody touched it. Lastly, actual border skirmishes broke out between Pennsylvania and other states. The second failure was that Spain closed the port of New Orleans to American shipping. There's no point in Western settlement if you can't get your goods to the Mississippi River to sail down to market, and there's nothing the government can do about this closure. The third failure was that the British ignored the Treaty of Paris and kept soldiers stationed in forts in the Ohio River Valley. The peacetime Confederation Army was less than 700 men, so they could do nothing about their presence. The fourth failure was the British passed the Orders of Council of 1783, 
which prevented New England from trading with the West Indies. And remember, due to the triangular trade, the West Indies and New England's economy are linked. This is basically British retribution for the revolution, trying to destroy New England's economy. The fifth failure was American merchants were captured by Barbary pirates, and Congress could not afford their ransom demands, nor could they send troops to rescue them. The sixth failure was the United States had run up war debts to various countries, individuals, and revolutionary veterans, and the Confederation Congress could not tax to raise money, so it had to rely on the generosity of the states, and no one wanted to contribute any money. So the debt will only get worse, with the country almost defaulting. Seventh, individual states also had large debts, so they were taxing their citizens heavily, and the common people responded by demanding that their state legislatures pass tax relief laws and print more paper money. Sometimes the people rioted and stormed courthouses, so many states responded by passing relief laws. And this leads to the eighth failure. The elites do not like these relief laws, and especially more democracy. An example of angered elites is James Madison, who believed that state relief laws would cause currency depreciation and discourage investors. Elites also believed the state legislatures would become filled with middling men. So as you can see, many rich did not want the revolution to be so democratic. Some believed that a strong central government run by disinterested elites would solve the problem. The point is that on every level, the Articles of Confederation, the Libertarian's wet dream, failed. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Failures Financial. To drive the point home on the financial aspects of the Articles of Confederation failure, let us look at one example that nearly everyone in government supported, even the elites across the country. As we discussed, there was much wartime disruption and the 1780s were times of an economic depression in the United States. The Confederation government asked for relief and the states could not or would not provide it. Fighting the revolution put America into debt and the debt got larger since we could not pay the interest payments. In 1781, the Articles of Confederation government asked for an impost of 1781, which is a 5% tariff across the board. Most people in government agree this is a good idea, but this is not a matter of simply passing a law. They had to make an amendment and needed all 13 states to agree on it. 12 states did, but Rhode Island refused. Rhode Island argued that passing a 5% tariff would make Congress independent of its constituents. Two years later, the government tried again, and George Washington even wrote a cover letter in support, and still it failed. Rhode Island said if it passed, an aristocratic government would rule and would establish arbitrary government. Due to this failure, the financial issues the country experienced was compounded as paper money is virtually worthless, which coined the term, quote, not worth a continental, end quote. So again, we see the weakness of decentralized government without the power of the purse. Posing taxation appears all well and fine, until the bottom falls out of the tub. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Prelude. In September of 1786, the Annapolis Convention was held. This was a meeting of 12 representatives from five states, of New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, 
in Virginia. Why these five states? Well, they had all experienced substantial destruction, they bordered one another, and they each had ports. Their original goal was to discuss the problems of interstate trade between them, and they called themselves, quote, the commissioners to remedy the defects of the federal government, end quote. Most delegates were nationalists who wanted to create a stronger national government. As a result, the delegates drafted a report urging their legislatures to call a general meeting of the states and a future convention for the same and such other purpose as the situation of public affairs may be found to require. In other words, they hoped the future meeting would discuss more than interstate trade. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Trouble in Massachusetts. While the delegates met in Annapolis, trouble was brewing in Massachusetts. The Orders and Council of 1783 had hit Massachusetts hard, as New England agriculture had fed the West Indies for a century. In addition, shipbuilding was also hit hard, and debts compiled with many farmers losing their land and being thrown in debtor's jail. These farmers pressed the Massachusetts government for stay laws, in order to stay their debt so they could pay it later. Thus, the farmers had been hurt by the post-war depression and high property taxes, and the Massachusetts government ignored all their pleas for relief. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Shays' Rebellion. As a result, hundreds of farmers from western Massachusetts stormed county courthouses to shut down the foreclosures of their farms. In September of 1786, 1,500 farmers, armed with muskets and pitchforks, and dressed in their old Continental Army uniforms, seized the courthouse at Springfield, Massachusetts. They were led by Daniel Shays, a veteran of the war who had fought at the Battle of Saratoga. The Massachusetts governor called up a 4,400-man company to crush the revolt. So just to note, this is a private army going against American veterans. In February of 1787, the private army surprised and routed the farmers. Shea and 13 others were tried and convicted, but the Massachusetts governor, experiencing an outpouring of support for the farmers, pardoned them. Shea's rebellion alarmed a number of Americans, especially the elites. George Washington called it, quote, a triumph for the advocates of despotism, end quote. Sam Adams said, quote, Rebellion against a king may be pardoned, but the man who dares to rebel against the laws of a republic ought to suffer death. End quote. But Thomas Jefferson, who was serving as ambassador to France, had a different take. Writing to James Madison in 1787, he said, quote, I hold it that a little rebellion now and then is a good thing and as necessary in the political world as storms in the physical. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is a natural manure, end quote. Now, most elites did not share Jefferson's opinion, but many believed that only a strong, energetic national government could prevent the country from devolving into anarchy. Thus, on February 21, 1787, the Confederation Congress issued the following statement, quote, that in the opinion of the Congress, it is expedient on the second day in May next a convention of delegates who shall have been appointed by several states be held at Philadelphia, end quote. Obviously, 
Congress's instructions for the convention were vague. And this makes sense, considering the convention might very well do away with the Confederation Congress. That is all I have for you for today. I hope you are staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.